You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning, uh, good early afternoon, wherever we are. Uh, in the day. It's great to be together. If we've not met before, my name is Craig and I'm one of the pastors here and I would just like to extend a welcome to you and uh, say thanks for coming. Thanks for being with us. Uh, It means a lot to us that you would come and um, worship. Maybe someone invited you or brought you or maybe you just found it online or drove by or however you found us. We're glad that you did and we want to just um, invite you to learn with us this morning Uh, as we take our next step in a series that we're coming to the end of. This is a series where we're talking about the church and what it means to be a part of a local church. Uh, For those who are part of this church, it means this church. Maybe you're a part of another church and just a guest here today. But we're talking about what does it mean to be a member, a functioning part of a local church. We're calling the series Remember, Recovering the glory of church membership, because it really is a glorious privilege uh, to be a part of a church. It's not a dry obligation uh, or something like that. It's a profound privilege once we see what the Scripture says about it. And we're going to see that today as we look at 1 Corinthians 12. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 12. If you don't, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can grab that and turn to page 558. And uh, we're going to talk about this idea that every member matters. So we're going to talk about every part, every person of of a local church and how they matter. You ever get up in maybe the middle of the night or maybe you're just the middle of the day and you're not paying attention, you're walking barefoot in your house and as you're walking, your big toe just hits head on with the leg of a table or a chair or something like some of you are wincing right now and you stub your toe and receive an inordinate amount of pain throughout your entire being. Have you had this experience? Well, I actually read an article about this this week. I'm just here to serve, and so I do all the research so you don't have to, and you can uh, thank me for that. But So I read this article in Wired magazine. It's called, Why Does Stubbing Your Toe Hurt So Darn Much? I'm editing for the sake of church talk. Uh, why does stubbing, that's the title, why does the stubbing your toe hurt so darn much? And this is some of the things they write, and they really describe how, why it's painful. But it says, bedposts, furniture legs, uneven flagstones, toys, the world is rife with foot-level obstacles, far too many for even the coordinated among us to completely avoid. But if our feet and toes are destined to occasionally collide with these hard, inanimate objects, why must even minor stubbings cause major agony? Yes, your toes seem to be among the select group of body parts that can be injured in a relatively insignificant way and yet still broadcast, at least for a minute or so, that they've been broken or in some other way irreparably damaged. It's as if they've conspired to overreact to every stimulus and encounter. So then he talks about how the brain works with pain, and then he talks a little bit about the anatomy with pain. 
of pain and says, sudden and sharp pain serves a very useful purpose. It's a warning, a protective biological signal urging you to stop whatever stupid thing you're intentionally or unintentionally doing. I suppose like banging your toe up against the leg of a table. Um, Your experience of acute pain will depend mainly on the type and density of nerves in the region you injure as well as the nature of the stimulus. So it's all about, the reason it's so painful, it's all about sort of the amount of nerves that are in the injured uh, part of your body. Take your pancreas or other viscera. You can actually cut into these parts of your body with little or no pain. Now, I tried this this week, uh, cutting into my own pancreas, and it was was not painful. It was amazing, really. Um, Stretching them, on the other hand, is absolutely excruciating. That's due to the type of innervation present and the specific stimuli those nerves react to. Similarly, if you took a hammer to an area like your stomach, it would certainly hurt, but it wouldn't produce anywhere near the pain of taking a hammer to your finger or toe. That's because your stomach is both poorly innervated, the, the, the amount of nerves concentrated there. And for most people, it's pretty well protected with layers of tissue, <laughs> which is a very gracious way of saying your toe's not fat, but be careful. Other, you may, not, may hurt if you hit your stomach. Your fingers and toes obviously don't enjoy the padding of your stomach. Both are also packed with nerves, specifically nerve-ending receptors that are good at detecting actual or potential tissue damage. When you stub your toe, you're massively stimulating a bunch of those nerve fibers at the same time. Those signals integrate in your spinal cord, which in turn relays that information to your brain. It's just a really big input. The brain reads that, and it hurts like heck. So that's why it hurts at some places more than others. And I, I question whether to share his conclusion uh, in a sermon, but I chose to, and no one corrected me at the break, so I'm going to do it again. He says this, while there's no surefire way to completely avoid stubbing your toe, science, this is science, science has confirmed that one of your involuntary reactions actually does help alleviate pain. Swearing. That's what it says. Now, young people, before you say, I can say that, uh, the preacher said it was okay. Listen to what he says. Just be sparing with your swearing. In a follow-up study, somebody gets paid for this, in a follow-up study, the same researchers found that people who cuss more in everyday life don't get the same pain-reducing benefits as those who only swear during painful events. So if your language is clean all the time, and the only time you say a bad word is when you hit your finger with a hammer, it does have an analgesic effect, according to science. I can neither recommend nor uh, you know, forbid that activity, but I'm saying that's what science says. Every part of your body matters. And this becomes really clear when one part of our body is really hurting, like our big toe, and it announces to all our body, we have a problem. Um, Every part of your body matters, and that becomes clear when one part of your body stops functioning. When one part stops functioning as it should, 
it affects the whole person. And that's because we are connected beings. Our bodies are connected. We're not a collection of parts. We are a uh, we are a unified, integrated, physical, actually physical and spiritual, being. Each part connected to another affects the whole. And the passage we're going to read this morning, that is the point Paul makes to the church at Corinthians, and he uses the metaphor of a human body to describe how the church is to work together. Now, what he's doing in this passage is he is correcting this church. Because this church has taken certain spiritual gifts, and one in particular, speaking in tongues, and they have made that gift the primary gift in their church. It's the gift that measures all other gifts. If you've got that gift, you're spiritual. If you don't, you're not. And so he is correcting this because the body is integrated. Each part of the body matters. So in the church, each spiritual gift matters which means each person matters. The Corinthians value some gifts above others, and so they are valuing some people above others, and that is the problem. And so the point in the passage we're about to read is that every member of the body matters. Every member matters. So we need every member, and we must care for every member. We need every member, and we must care for every member. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first two verses of the passage we're going to look at, because in these two verses, he lays a theological foundation. He makes some theological points, and then he goes into a very earthy, sort of easy-to-understand analogy of how the human body and the church are similar. But first, the theological point, which is a little bit Uh, more difficult to grasp. This is what he says in verse 12. For just as the body is one and as many members and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So this is his theological point. Very briefly, he says we're one body with many members. He, he gives this point that we are all members of one body, and that body is what? Christ. So it is with the body of Christ. We are all members of Christ. Now, that's kind of hard to get our head around, but it's one of the greatest truths of the New Testament that we're united to Christ, and we're united with one another as well. So this is what he says in verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. So he's saying the spirit baptized, the word baptized means to immerse, um, to plunge, to dip, to sink, however you want to say it. So he's saying that by the spirit, when you believe in Jesus, what the Holy Spirit does is he plunges you, places you, immerses you in the body of Christ. He connects you to Christ's body, and it does not matter, this is the big point, does not matter your background, Jew or Gentile, big, big issue in the old uh, covenant. It would be like black and white in the south uh, in the uh, 1800s, big divide. Uh, so he's saying these are, these are big divide, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. So whatever the distinction you have culturally 
when you meet Christ, those distinctions are done away with, and you are all equal in one body. You all are placed into Jesus and joined to him, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. What does that mean? We all have the Holy Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit in us. Every Christian. There aren't some who have the Holy Spirit and some don't, and that means all spiritual gifts are valid, valuable, necessary. So just as there aren't rankings of people, sometimes the the language has been used, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody is equal before, equal center before Jesus. We all need the mercy of Christ. We're all equal. So just as we are all equally valuable parts of the church, members of the body of Christ, so we all have the same spirit. We drink of the one spirit. So we don't elevate some spiritual gifts in some people over other spiritual gifts in other people. So that's the theological part. We're one body with many members, all equal, all possessing the Spirit. Now he gets into the practical application of that theological concept. Verse 14, I'm going to read 14 through 20 here. And here he's going to talk about the fact we need every member. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is... God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. So the Corinthians are enamored with a few gifts, primarily one or two. They're enamored with just a few gifts. They love them, and those gifts are elevated. So that means a certain kind of person is elevated, And when that certain kind of person is idealized, those who don't have that gift begin to feel less important. They begin to feel unnecessary. They begin to feel unneeded. So if the church is built on this is the really great gift and you don't have that gift, then you can begin to wonder, are my gifts even important or valuable? Am I even needed here? Am I even part of the body? That's what he says can happen. So rather than just tell them that, like I just told you that, he does it through an illustration. And this kind of illustration makes it very clear. He says in verse 14, think about the foot. Now he's talking about your foot. He's not being, uh, you know, hyper-spiritual here. He's using an analogy. Think about the foot. And he says that, verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So he's saying, if the foot speaks up, you know, looks up at the hand and says, wow, the hand is awesome. I mean, the hand is waving. The hand is shaking. Nobody came in here this morning and shook feet with one another. You shook hands with one another. The hand is great. The hand is not covered like the foot. The hand is out in the open. When somebody does something great, nobody says, give them a foot. They say, give them a hand, give them a hand. The hand is used to grasp and to eat and to touch. Uh, the hand is used in all kinds of ways to, uh, to communicate affection to another person, to point. Uh, the, hand is, the hand is amazing. 
I'm just a foot. Down here in the bottom, nobody cares about the foot, said Eeyore the foot. If I could only be a hand. That's what the passage is saying. But he says, if the foot says that, it doesn't make it any less part of the body. The foot can compare itself to the hand and feel bad about itself, but it's still connected to the body and an important part of the body. Now, he does the same thing with the ear. He says, verse 16, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less part of the body. So if the ear says, look, I, man, I wish I could see. Uh, you know, I, I wish I uh, had the ability to look around and see and focus, and, but I can't do any of that. The, the, the eyes up front, I'm here off, off here on the side. Well, it doesn't matter if the ear compares itself to the eye. Uh, it's still part of the body. So it's probably not too hard to understand this illustration, right, what he's saying. He's saying that if one part of the body compares itself to another, uh, that is an unwise thing to do because it is missing the point that the foot is needed and valuable and part of the body. The ear is needed and valuable and part of the body. Can you relate to this? I mean, we all face the temptation to covet other people's gifts, to compare ourselves. That's what's really going on here. He's talking about comparing ourselves among ourselves. Now, the real problem here is that the Corinthians and maybe the leaders of the church have focused on a few gifts, and they, by doing that, they have, um, you know, marginalized other gifts. So there's a problem with the church overall. There's a problem with the leaders. There's a problem with whoever is, you know, teaching this false Uh, doctrine that some gifts are more important than others. But there's also a responsibility for each member of the body, because what he's saying here is the presenting issue has to do with comparison or envy. You know what that's like to compare yourself with other people's gifts, to desire other people's gifts? Back in a previous life, or at least a few years ago, uh, one of my responsibilities was I did some traveling. I don't travel much anymore, but I used to travel and part of uh, in, for ministry responsibilities. And one of the things I would do was at times be invited to speak at a conference. And uh, conferences where there might be multiple speakers uh, speaking and we're all together in the main sessions. And so if I spoke later uh, in the conference, I got to hear all the other speakers. And Here's the reality of what I often experienced, comparison envy. Now, this may not be a foot-and-hand illustration because we were doing the same thing, teaching, so it might be a hand-hand illustration, you know, but the point of comparison is the same. I can remember sitting there and thinking, wow, Lord, bless this teacher, this preacher who's preaching in a session before me. I pray that you really use them, that they do well, but not too well. Because I, I don't want to come up And after they give some powerful message, some articulate, spirit-moving, powerful message, I don't want to come up and then just sound like, uh, you know, just like, that is so weak. And I'm just comparing myself to them. Now, I'm not willfully, I never got this far, like, Lord, help this message stink. I mean, I never did that. It didn't quite go that far. But I I just, I was just aware of, Lord, I'm going to, how I do is going to be, inadvertently reflected in my mind by how they do compared my gift to them that's what this passage is is getting at minimizing my own gift at points that's envy 
That's covetousness. That's breaking of the Tenth Commandment. Maybe you know that experience. Wow, I, I wish I could connect with other people like her. I mean, she has a gift of hospitality. She's welcoming. She's got a beautiful home. We went to community group there. It's beautiful. It's welcoming. Everybody loves her. And man, wish I had that gift. Wish I could organize like he does. I can't even put on matching socks, and he can run a company. He can administrate a whole business. He can, he can oversee the operations of a company, or he can run an event at the church. This is probably, though, though there's gifts outside the church, probably the, this is most closely talking about life together in the church. So let's do that. He can organize an event, and it goes off without a flaw. Everyone is drawn to her for counsel. When they have a problem, they go talk to her. She's wise. She listens. She know what's, knows what to say. If somebody comes to me with a problem, I'm just like, oh, oh, man, I have no idea. I don't know what to say. I wish I could give advice and counsel wisely. You know, he has a gift of mercy. He knows what to do when someone's hurting, they're grieving, they're needy, they're desperate. He knows just what to say. Every time I speak, it makes it worse. The person's crying, I speak, they're crying more. I I just like ruin it. I don't know what to say. He knows exactly, and when he prays, oh my goodness, the person's, thank you. When I pray, it's like, next? I mean, you know, wish I could serve like that deacon, that person that serves, runs that ministry, wish I could serve like that deacon, or at least be recognized like that person is recognizing. His point is there is no place of comparison and coveting the gifts of another for the foot to say, I wish I was the hand, for the ear to say, I wish I was an eye. You are still a part of the body, meaning you have a role and a function, and I have a role and a function that is vital and critical, and more importantly, is sovereignly given me by God. That's the whole point of verse 18. Verse 18, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. See, we tend to go horizontal. Oh, look at that person's gifts. Look at that person, what they can do. Look at their abilities. Look how they're wired. We tend to go like that and compare ourselves with others. This passage is about looking up to the Lord and saying the Lord chooses uh, how to, who he will give gifts to, what gifts he will give to them, because he is building a body, and a body needs a toe and an ankle and a kneecap. Uh, a body needs an arm and an elbow. The body needs all of the parts, and so he makes the parts, and he joins them together as he chose. So when I am envying the gift of another, when I'm comparing myself with others, I wish I was that, I wish I was that, I wish I was that, I wish I was that. My problem's not with them. My problem's not with me. My problem is with God. I am placing judgment on God in that motive, in that moment, and saying, God, why didn't you make me, gift me like that? The danger of the foot saying to the hand, I have no role because I'm not a hand, is that comparison takes our focus off of God and puts it on ourselves. So the foot, rather than saying, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body of Christ, focusing on 
his little footsy self. Rather than that, the foot should be walking and carrying the entire body, by the way, a responsibility that is very significant. So rather than doing what she's called to do as a foot and carry the body, the foot in the illustration is comparing, despairing, and drawn to sort of a paralyzing self-pity, saying, I'm not even needed. I'm not even a part of the body. I don't even count. I don't even have a function. See, security comes not from looking to the left and right and saying, what are they good at? What are they good at? Where do I measure up? What's my place? What can I do? Oh, I did that so bad. Somebody else does that so well. No, the, 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 the point to find our identity is not how we compare against others. It's looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, what have you given me? And not only what have you given me, how can I serve in any way possible? How can I look out to see a need and meet it? And oftentimes, that's how we find our gifts, by the way. I had somebody at the break tell me, this is someone who leads a Sunday morning ministry. They didn't give me permission to share their name, so I'm not going to. But they lead a, a Sunday morning ministry that's, that's uh, very responsible. And the person said to me that someone came to me and said, would you be interested in doing this? I didn't even think that was... I was interested in that or that was my gift, but they said there was a need. And so I stepped into that area and now I love it. I find joy. I find, it's like what I look forward to doing. Now, what was that? The Lord put it on someone's heart in leadership to go to that person. Would you want to do this? Look to the Lord. I'm not sure, but I'll serve. Started serving and just found their lane, found a place of serving. That is wonderful. We want to look vertically, not horizontally. Can you relate to this? The foot and the ear, feeling like they're not part of the body. Do you ever feel that your part in the church is just not important? Maybe you're hesitant to jump in. Maybe you're on the fringe a little bit because you feel like, my giftings aren't needed like someone else's. Like, I went to community group. I visited one time listened to everybody in the room, looked at them. I'm, I'm like a little toenail at best on a good day in that group. <laughs> Who needs a little toenail? Th- that group's together. Things are happening. They don't need me. Comparison and em- envy, self-pity, it's paralyzing, and it robs us of the freedom that comes from saying, God, how have you made me? And let me find that out as I just look for a need and seek to serve. It also misses the whole focus because the the focus isn't for me to be a foot or a hand. The focus is for the body to be healthy and built up. What I am a part of is more important than the part I play. It's commonly said. What I'm a part of is more important than the part I play. Well, what am I a part of? What's the goal? Look back at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he lists gifts. Why does anybody have a spiritual gift? For the good of everybody. Why does anybody have a role or a function or a task or a spot? For the common good. And the Lord shows how foolish this thinking is when I want to be a hand and I'm a foot or I want to be something I'm not. He shows how foolish it is. It's like, what if everybody thought that? So to the Corinthians, he's saying, what if everybody just wanted to speak in tongues and that was the only gift? 
But what if everybody wanted that? Look, what he, he tells us how foolish that idea is in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Think about that. He's giving a very graphic, sort of a gross picture. He's saying, like, what if the whole body, so instead of having different parts, what if it was a six-foot eyeball just rolling down the street? connecting, you know, collecting dust, and then needing to bathe and visine to clear the eye. What, what if this was the whole church? A gargantuous eyeball. That, that, is, that is not a healthy church. That is not a healthy body. That is a monstrosity. That is a low-level, B-grade horror movie from like 1950 in black and white, the coming of the eyeball. That is not what we shoot for. And a church that is centered on one gift or promotes one gift, that's what you become, an eyeball church. Or it says, if, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? An ear church that can't smell. An eyeball church that can't walk. So that's why we don't want to be an eyeball church. We're not trying to be a church just focused on one thing. We're not just focused on the gift of teaching. We're not just focused on uh, prayer. We're not just focused on evangelism. Uh, We're not just focused on prophecy. We're not just focused on mercy. We're not just focused on leadership or singing or connecting with our city. We're not just connected. We're not just focusing on one thing to be an eyeball church. Because what happens if you really highlight one thing, people with that gift are drawn to that community, and then everybody that's not as strong in that gift begins to feel less there's not a place for me, and like the foot and the ear, I'm not even part of the body. So that's what we want to be, a healthy body. Often people ask, well, how do I know what my gift is? And that's not answered in the text. Um, But a couple ideas on this, like the guy who shared with me about leading an area just because there was a need, oftentimes I find that the best way is to find a need and to step out and to serve. I mean, you can go online. There's spiritual gifts tests. They have some value. They also have some weaknesses because like all personality tests, or whatever, it's just I, it's my answers of my perception of myself. And over the years, I've found that my perception of myself is not 100% accurate. Actually, I believe things about myself that no one else believes at points. <laughs> it's called pride. Uh, so, or uh, maybe you think too highly or too lowly of yourself. So they have some value. I'm not dismissing it out of hand. There's some value to that. But I think the best way is to find a place to serve, get involved, and see what surfaces with your gifts. Join a community, a growth group or a community group. Begin to relate with others. Begin to serve with others. And if gifts are for the common good, if gifts are to be used in community, then frequently they will be discerned in community. So not just me figuring out this is what my gifts are, but as I relate with others, as I serve, as I volunteer, as I help, then often what happens is someone's gifts rise. And we need to be really seeking to help other people identify that. If somebody's got a real merciful heart, mercy is one of the gifts in the New Testament. Somebody has a merciful heart, a gift of mercy, and every, they, when they pray for folks in the group, you do sense the Lord really doing something. That's, that's not a point of comparison. That's something to celebrate and say, the Lord's working through that person, but to point that out to them. I don't know if you knew this, but when you pray for others, especially that are going through a, a difficult circumstance and suffering, I just feel your heart when you pray, and it's like, it's, it seems like the heart of the Lord for people. I think you've got a gift of mercy. 
And we need to help other people see this in community. Um, you can read the scripture. The passage we're in talks about some of the more, what sometimes are called the miraculous gifts. Um, but you can read Romans 12 has gifts listed. Uh, 1 Peter 4 has gifts listed. I don't think any one list is exhaustive. There's gifts in the Old Testament that we see, people who were gifted uh, to build the temple, say like construction or art gifts, or ever artistic gifts. Everything's not in here that are gifts. But but you can begin to study and pray. The main thing is to step out and seek to meet a need and see what the Lord does. Every member matters. The second and last point is that we are to care for every member. That's where he goes next. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow, the, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have, this is key, the same care for one another. All the body, members of the body have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's really the point he's making. We're to care for all parts of the body. Now, here's the interesting thing. I found this interesting, at least. That the image of the body representing a corporate whole is not original with Paul. He is taking an image that readers in the first century under Roman rule would have understood because the Roman Empire was described as a body, an august body of the the people that were the greatest empire uh, in the world at that time. But here's how Romans used the idea of the body uh, to communicate something that was uh, systemic in their culture. And it was that just as there are different parts of the body so people are created to fulfill different functions. Some are created to serve, some are created to rule, and that's just self-evident. Look at the body. So they would have used it in a different way. I don't know how they would have said it exactly, but we could say some are meant to be the feet. That's the slave. You carry, you work, you move. Some are meant to be the brain. You think, you govern, you oversee. And so just as some people are created and designated to fulfill a role in society that we might call more menial, that's not bad. Just accept it. That's what it's like to be part of the Roman Empire. Others are created to have a more authoritative, overseeing type of responsibility. It's self-evident. You can see it in the human body. Paul takes that and turns it exactly upside down. He says the whole body is needed. The whole body is necessary. And as a matter of fact, he's going to say there are no social divisions. Verse 25, everyone is to have the same care for one another. And he says, let me tell you, let me give you two parts of the body. Think about the weak parts. He says the weak parts of the body are indispensable. Now, most scholars think that when he says weak parts of the body, he's talking about vulnerable parts that need protection. So probably the vital organs. So your heart, your lungs, uh, you know, your liver, they need the protection of your rib cage. 
So they can't live on their own. No one walks. Nobody has like a beating heart out here on their elbow. It's vulnerable. It's, it can be hurt. So you have to have a rib cage. You have to have skin. You have to keep that thing protected and covered up because it's weak, but it's, ind- it's indispensable. Try living without a heart. See how that goes. See what he's saying? So what we think are weak, sort of tissue kind of organs have to be protected, can't stand on their own. you got to have those to live. He goes on and says, what about the unpresentable parts? What does that mean? That means parts that we don't present. And he says in verse 23, they are to be treated with greater modesty. Well, he's probably talking about our sexual organs. Uh, we don't show them publicly. We cover them. So he's saying that you you pay special attention and give special care because you cover some parts of you that aren't to be presented in a way that you didn't pay any attention to other parts. So the parts you cover, you had to get covered. Uh, my hand, I didn't cover that, so I didn't give it any thought. So he's saying you treat some parts with modesty. That's important. So the point is all parts are vital None are to be excluded based on some human reasoning or design. The church does not evaluate people as the world does. In fact, it's just the opposite. Just the opposite. The weaker parts are indispensable. In Rome, the weaker parts can serve. The powerful parts can rule. And likely that's not just Rome. That's culture. That's how people live out there so frequently. God says we need one another. We need the weaker parts. We pay careful attention to the parts that need modesty. We care equally for all as one body. Because we're one body, we're connected. We're so connected, verse 26, that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He said, it's not some are more powerful than others, some are more gifted than others, some are more valuable than others. No, he's saying if one of us suffer, if the big toe snags the, the leg of the chair when you're running through the living room, the whole body's going to notice, and it matters and we're going to care. We're going to bend over. Oh, you know, I'm dying. And we're going to rub our toe or whatever you do for, it's been a while since I stubbed my toe, but I've got a feeling it's coming after this illustration. <laughs> Man, I'm keeping shoes on the next month, uh, sleeping in shoes, because it's coming when I talk about something like this. Um, every member is one celebrates, we all celebrate. When one suffers, we all suffer. Here's a thought for us. This presupposes that one member of the body would know the other members of the body well enough, be connected enough to know when someone else is suffering or when someone else is rejoicing. That's a good word for us in today in the church culture that we live in. There's so many things about the church culture we live in I thank God for. They are a gift from the Lord. But we have weaknesses in our church culture in North Dallas as well, don't we? I'm not saying them. I'm saying us. We all do. Uh, and this is one of them, that we can think being a part of the church, and my connection to the church is I looked at the back of some dude's head 40 minutes while the preacher talked, and then I went home, and that was my connection. You know, I can tell you, that's what I know. But here he's saying, here, no, you're to be so connected. You're at least to have a group that you're so connected in 
that when one person suffers, you would know about it like if you stubbed your toe. If one person's rejoicing, you would know about it because they shared, both cases they shared, you knew, they felt safe sharing, and you entered into their life. You're, you're, you're connected. So I want to ask you, are you moving towards people in those kinds of relationships? Are you moving towards people so that you would know what affects them, what they're carrying, the burdens that they carry, and the victories that they are celebrating? That's God's plan for a healthy body. Through the cross and resurrection, God has saved us. He's joined us to Christ. He's placed us in connection with his body. We are members of one another. Every member matters. Every member is needed. Every member is to be cared for. So how do we respond? Well, very briefly, I would say use your gifts. Are you comparing your gifts or are you using your gifts? And, and don't worry so much about what, what are my gifts. Be concerned with, am I moving towards people with a heart to serve? You, don't get overly caught up on, am I the third toe or the second toe? Just start walking as a toe and let's see what happens, okay? So move towards others. Seek to bear other people's burdens. Have you considered how God might want to use you? Do you realize there are others that need your contribution? The leg needs the ankle connected to the foot. We we need one another. Now, I'm not saying God's dependent on us. Like, don't let God down because he's, what's he going to do if you don't help him? I'm not saying God's dependent. He'll find another toe. He will put a toe in there. But the point still in the text is that God has assigned you a role, a function, a gifting, a calling, a network of relationships, a location to be connected with other people in the church, and you are needed. You bring something to the body. You contribute. You're designed to contribute something. And if you think it really doesn't matter if I show up, you are wrong. Not because I say so, because God says so. God arranged the body together, and each part is needed, and that means you. That means me. We are all needed. God gifts us differently and uses us differently. One of the places in our church where the gifts are really used and show is in our small groups. On a Sunday morning, there's a lot of people using all kinds of gifts, I'm serving in all kinds of ways, but it's really in a smaller community that we are able to serve in a meaningful way where everybody carries the load, pitches in, and helps one another in the community project of growing in Christ. So begin or rebegin, whatever it is, by finding a place finding a need. One thing you can do is you can go to the church website. There's a tab under the, uh, there's a, well, under one of the tabs. There's only like five or six tabs. I forget which one it is, but under one of the tabs, it says volunteer. You can click on there and find out ministries in the church and find a place to volunteer. But this is a healthy, this is a goal. This is a vision. This is a healthy church that, that he's describing here. The Corinthians are not healthy, but the healthy vision is each part connected to another, valuing every other gift, seeing the need for others to use their gifts in my life, seeing the need for me to use my gifts for them, and seeing the calling of God who makes it all work together through Christ. 
when that happens, it is a testimony. When a body is strong and healthy and moving and acting like this, it's, it's, it's wow. You ever see a world-class athlete? Uh, it could be someone who's a dancer. It could be an NBA player at the slam dunk contest or something like that where you're going, you see like this amazing physical feat where every fiber of their being, you know, is laid out making that catch in the end zone, whatever it is, or throwing a fastball at 90-something miles an hour, every fiber of their being is involved in that task. And when you see it and you go, man, that is amazing, that's the picture here. The church is to be a healthy body working together when every part is doing its part, rejoicing with those who rejoice, suffering and weeping with those who weep, using our gifts, building up, acting for the common good. What I'm a part of is more important than the part I play, all by grace because of what Christ has done for me, put dying and rising and putting me in his body. When that is all in sync, it's a testimony and a witness to a watching world who says, yeah, I thought I knew what the church was like. I thought what I knew what those people were like. But when I got among them and saw, I'd never seen anything like it. That's the grace of God. We want to remember what it means to be a member of his body, the profound privilege we have united to him and his people. Jesus died and rose to make us his people, to connect us with him, to connect us with one another. And Jesus identifies with his people. He identifies with his church in the most intimate, close, united way possible. In the book of Acts, there's a guy named Saul. He's a bad guy, turns good guy. When he's a bad guy, he's out persecuting Christians. And he is carting them off to jail and all kinds of stuff like this. Individual Christians. And Jesus appears to him on a, when he's on a road one day. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what he says. That's what Saul's doing, but that's not what he says. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus so identifies with the church, we are his body. He is the head. We're united and created to act in a manner that glorifies him. That's our identity. We're not just attenders at a meeting. We're not just in a church database as some member somewhere. We are connected to Jesus. We are connected to his people. And he says, this is my body. His body was broken that we might be one. His blood was shed that we might be forgiven, reconciled to him, and reconciled to one another. This is our identity. We're not a club we're not an institution. We're not just some organization. We are the body of Christ. Each member valued and doing its part. And to remember this and to experience this reality afresh in the gospel, we're going to receive communion to close our meeting. So let's stand together. I'm going to ask the ushers to come on down. And uh, as you do, uh, they're going to pass the tray, and as they do, if you're a Christian, please take a cup. They're double cupped. The bread's on the bottom, the uh, juice is on top. 
So please take a cup and hold on to it. If you're not a Christian, then this really wouldn't be meaningful to you. So we'd say just hold on because this says here that we are identifying, we're partaking of Christ and identifying with his body. If you are a Christian, receive. If you're not, why don't you stick around and talk to us afterwards and we can talk about what does it mean to be a Christian and get you ready for the next time that we participate in communion. So go ahead and pass, please. Hold on to them if you're a Christian and want to receive and then we will take it together in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.